This is Women in PR, a weekly podcast about inspiring women that have embraced PR and made it shine, changing it for the better every day. It's about mentors, founders, researchers, role models, leaders. I am Anna Adi. Women in PR is brought to you by Quadriga University of Applied Sciences in Berlin and professionalpodcasts.com. Is PR a feminine profession? And if it is, what does that mean? In this episode, we'll be discussing the so-called pink ghetto, the feminization of public relations and its effects. This week's guest is Dr. Liz Yeomans. She's been working with Leeds Business School at Leeds Beckett University in England since 1994. Having had an extensive career in government and local government communications before that, she's also the author of a book called Public Relations as Emotional Labor, in which she discusses how, when, and why emotionality applies to public relations and how this influences our understanding of the profession's ethical responsibilities. Liz, thank you so much for your time and welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me, Anna. It's a pleasure. Now, Liz, in your recently released book, you speak a lot about public relations as emotional labor. What are the characteristics of emotional labor and how do they apply to PR? Okay, well, the theory um, goes back to um, a sociologist who wrote in the 1980s, 1983, published a book, um, the, Ma- the Managed Heart, um, Commercialization of Feeling. This was Ali Russell Hochschild, who's still around, I believe. And she coined the term emotional labor to refer to jobs um, that involve face-to-face interaction with the public, um, the need for people in those uh, jobs to manage their own emotions and displays of feeling to elicit a desired emotional response in other people. Um, And another characteristic is that it allowed the employer, uh, through training and supervision, to exercise a degree of control. So there are sort of cultural features um, involved in that. And her classic study looked at um, the Delta Airline um, cabin crew, most of whom were women. And she maintained that um, because uh, half of women's jobs call for emotional labour, that it was very much a women's issue. And it particularly related to those who were um, kind of trained or socialised for this kind of work, who came from the middle classes, especially in Anglo and Northern European cultures, where traditionally... Um, there was a high degree of emotion management. So this was her thesis. It was very much driven by a kind of Marxist worldview um, in which uh, she contended that um, it wasn't the factories making things that that uh, created this um, sort of phenomenon, but it was about this, you know, this exercise of uh, involving um face-to-face interaction and the management of feeling, which she said had negative consequences. This was for uh, status, identity, um, and uh, also it could lead to 
a loss of self, a loss of a sense of self. So it's a very, very critical piece of work that she created, but it spawned a huge range of studies that have been done um, since the 1980s. Um, and in more recent years, uh, there's been a kind of renewed interest in, in this research because it applies to so many um, occupations. Um, while she was focusing on um, you know, cabin crew. Um, there've been lots of studies looking at people in call centres in those very, very clear-cut service industries. But in more recent years, there's been a focus on professions, um, and the focus on the professions, such as law and medicine, um, and from my point of view, public relations warrant warrants that sort of um, you know renewed interest. I think um, what it actually means for those people in those service um, um, face-to-face roles uh, and in public relations um, that's people who are providing the services in agencies and this is my main focus. Right so um, you're, you say you're looking to agencies in particular does this thesis of emotional labor that you have implies that women would be expected to almost have a duty of care for their clients um, when their male colleagues um, will not? To a certain extent, it it does imply that, um, particularly when we see the uh, segregation, the sex, what's called the gender segregation, but is actually segregation by sex role or by sex. Um, so we look at men and women, um, we look at what they're doing in public relations. And for some years now, there's been this split. Uh, those who are doing a lot of the relational work and doing a lot of the technical work, doing a lot of the day-to-day work are women who are employed in large numbers uh, in agencies at the junior through to middle levels, um, some making it beyond that middle level, but far fewer women are making it to board level. And therefore, we have a split in the UK, for example, 64% women, um, you know, versus 36% men as a whole. And then when we look at the board level, um, 36% of, of women are actually at board level. So there's a disparity there because clearly there should be more of them um, at that level if we look at the, you know, the uh, gender split um, across the board. Right. Um, well, that is quite quite correct, right? If we think in terms of funnels and how you have a workforce that is going to lead, uh, thinking also of meritocracy, so acceding to positions in higher on the hierarchy based on merit. Uh, the question is, how does it happen that the funnel is more giving um, with some than than with others? Um, but there's something else about emotional labor as well. Mm. Is is could you? Could you clarify whether the moment a profession is is linked more thoroughly with emotional labor, what happens with gender perceptions? Um, I'm just thinking um, in, in the past, males, for instance, would shy away from entering nursing. Mm. because of this association of emotional labor. Mm. Uh, and, and one of the things that resulted is that they might have different job titles. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yes, is, is that something that you've observed happening in, in public relations? Um, how far does this go? 
Well, certainly, it's an interesting but very complex uh, situation, I think, and it's very difficult to put your finger on. One of my reasons for, for, for looking at emotional labour was finding a way to explain what, what, why we have this gender split. Um, what was once a, a male-dominated profession switched somewhere around the 1980s, 1990s, um, to become a feminized profession. And with feminized professions goes a whole host of associations, what that means. Uh, possibly the you know, driving down of, of salaries, the, the loss of status, um, and you know, all kinds of negative consequences. And I would argue that's probably what's happened in, in public relations. So what's going on? Um, yes, the job involves a lot of relational work. And, um, you know, there, there is a perception that women are good at communicating. Women perceive themselves as good communicators, which is why I think they are driven towards these kinds of roles. Um, so there's a certain amount of self segregation or self-selection involved in the process alongside um, stereotypes of what women do best and what men do best um, in that kind of situation. And it's not, not just public relations. We're looking across the whole of the, you know, range of professions and the communications industry. You know, in advertising, we have a similar situation. So we've got you know, this phenomenon, which, um, you know, we're told about because the regular surveys that are done, and those figures don't seem to shift in terms of the gender split. So I'm interested in, you know, what's going on behind all of this. And it's a lot more, I think it's a lot more complex than, um, you know, one would like to, to admit, you know, it's not a straightforward um, cause and effect, in other words, there's a lot, a lot going on. And it's to do with, um, things like uh, gender socialization from when men and women, you know, are growing up and the kinds of roles that they might expect to be doing. Um, but I, I guess the question is, what, you know, what draws men to these roles as well? Because, you know, if, if, if they're getting to the top, what, what is it that makes them more, um, you know, uh, deserving of those of those top uh, level jobs um, so my research is 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 a kind of trying to plumb the depths of what emotional labor means now in the 20th you know 21st century um, and you know is it actually really intrinsic to the professional role which some theorists contend it is I mean uh, in academia in other service, orientated jobs um you know the professional role involves a certain level of emotional support and care say for students and in a client related role there's the care of the client and the um ability to relate to the client in a um constructive way um, which is going to deliver the results that the client wants um, and I would say part of that, you know, what is it the client wants is about being looked after and about being responded to. And that this is where the emotional labor comes into play. So it's not just about providing a service in a very technical sense. It's about providing a full package of um, uh, 
you know, uh, services which intrinsically involve emotional labor. Now, this is very, very reminiscent to the Velvet Ghetto Study that was undertaken uh, by the IABC uh, in, in the 1980s. Um, I mean, I remember that one of the findings was that both men and women uh, do not, but particularly women, do not belong to PR management. Mm. Um, and and that was because they were perceived, they were seen to be better at these technical jobs, at these uh, relationship um, building or maintaining aspects of, of the profession. Mm. Um, would, would you say that that is still the case? It probably is the case, but I would doubt whether anyone would want to talk about it in such an explicit way. Certainly, I think practitioners um, are not these issues in a very explicit way. Um, for example, a piece of research that came out in 2017 um, was trying to understand the reason for the gender pay gap um, in the, the UK PR profession. And this was a piece of qualitative research uh, conducted by the CIPR. And um, this was actually looking at what it was that, that uh, created problems for women who were trying to get to the higher levels within the profession. What were the factors? And, and I think the majority of the interview participants were um, were agency people. I, I'd have to check on that, but I believe they were. And there were a whole range of factors involved, you know, in why they were not getting hired or promoted. And one of the factors put forward was, um, or reasons put forward, was something called unconscious bias. Now, unconscious bias has become a kind of popular term that's used uh, in relation to inequalities in hiring and promoting people. Um, not just from a gender perspective, but from a diversity perspective as a whole, why it is that, say, for example, people from ethnic minority backgrounds are not being hired or promoted. And in this piece of research, unconscious bias was mentioned. And in other words, men who were at the top of the profession or running, running their own businesses or comprising board uh, members, largely comprising board members, were hiring people in their own image. They were hiring people like themselves who they knew could do a job. But also, in, in doing so, they were perhaps making some assumptions, um, stereotypical assumptions about women's capability to do those jobs. Um, and this was considered to be a, a, you know, a, a factor, as I said, um, in why women were not getting there. So there is perhaps this unconscious bias is a little bit of a, a polite term for, for really discrimination. <laughs> it's what we're talking about. And um, it, but uh, unconscious bias is, is a kind of kind way of saying it. In other words, people should be well aware that, you know, they, they, they can't make discriminatory um, decisions when hiring and promoting staff, but you know, um, perhaps some some lack of awareness around that 
could be a reason. I don't know. Um, but this was, this is a, a term that's banded around quite a lot. And there are lots of other factors. So assumptions about, you know, related to that, which is assumptions about women's caring role, um, you know, either for children or for elderly parents or whatever, um, that they might not want to go for a higher level job because of that or because they, um, you know, they're reaching a uh, too senior age, um, you know, so those sorts of reasons. Um, then we have, you know, but we have a clear gap in the gender pay gap data that's come out of the industry. Um, there is a, you know, a gender issue because once everything's been taken into account to do with women's career patterns, such as part-time work, uh, career breaks to have families, all kinds of factors taken into account. There is still a pay gap of around, I think, five to six thousand pounds in the UK, which cannot be explained. And, and this is where the, the gender issues come into play. There can be no other reason other than the fact that women are women and therefore gender ideology and beliefs about women and what they can and cannot do come into play. So how do we get out of this unconscious bias? I mean, in a sense, the, the term seems to be excusing itself and ourselves, saying that you do not realize you're doing this. Um, it's, it's a mistake that you're not willingly committing. Um, so how, how do we move on? Um, from from here, you teach, or at least uh, you used to teach for for quite a lot of years in, in academia. Um, you're carrying out research. How would you see us moving out um, from this corner where history and practice has brought us? Well, I think we've got to remember first of all that um, the whole issue of gender inequalities in public relations is quite a recently published phenomenon um, within the industry. The research that's been going on over the years um, since the 1980s has possibly not reached practitioners, certainly, and I'm talking about the UK perspective here, um, has only been a talking point, let's say, for the past five years. And, in, you know, when we've looked, when we look back at um, past staff, um, sorry, past surveys, state of the profession surveys um, in the UK, there's been all kinds of excuses as to why there's this um, gender split that, we've, that I talked about earlier, you know, why, why it is there are so many women and yet they're not realising their potential, they're not reaching these, these top roles. And they've been explained away and explained away. But in, in the last few years, and it's partly to do with the fact that there are some women breaking through and there have been presidents of the um, CIPR, um, the last two presidents of the CIPR being women. So there's been a lot more focus on, you know, why, you know, research as to why these these uh, these things are happening. So it's a, it's because it's being talked about. I would say that's a good thing. Um, but when we start talking about gender and uh, say feminism and the, and ways in which women can um, try to, uh, you know, break the glass ceiling and, and break some of the disparities within the profession, then it comes back to education and training. And I can't see any way out of that. And I'm not sure that um, 
universities have been grabbing hold of this as uh, much as they should have done. Um, and, and uh, you know, the profession itself perhaps hasn't really addressed these issues in the training um, for practitioners because the focus has been on knowledge, you know, becoming a more strategic practitioner, becoming uh, better at counselling, better at strategizing, all this, all this, these sorts of things, these technical and strategic skills have been a very, very clear focus. Um, but a little bit like some of the other social questions around PR, such as ethics, you know, the, the debates have only recently come to the fore, I think, within the practice. But I think that the research and the practice should be kind of informing each other and we need to have those discussions. I mean, on the positive side, um, there are women's networks that are being revitalised um, in the UK. Women in PR is one of them and that's part of a global network of um, country-related um, networks. There's one in Germany, there's, there's uh Women in PR Deutschland, for example. There's uh, an organisation called Global Women in PR. Um, so these are now starting to connect and I think try to provide some focus for women who want to gain these leadership roles. Uh, and there are ways in which they can do that um, through mentoring schemes and networking with other women. But I mean, these are self-help schemes and um, I will say that perhaps they could do a lot more to encourage uh, junior practitioners and really reach out to junior level people, women to uh, encourage them to do similar things. It's not just, in other words, for senior level women, um, which currently this is the, the, the situation, but hopefully that will change. But uh, coming back to what we can do in education, I think universities do a lot more to focus on what the job's really about, you know, and what's required and also what kind of barriers um, women might face. Um, those I don't think have been really discussed. It's interesting that you mentioned advising uh, and, and that made me think of something completely different. Um, mm -hmm. We were talking about the, the glass ceiling and breaking through the glass ceiling, mm -hmm. um, which is, in a sense, all in a way of, of Grunig's uh, excellence theory, right, about mm -hmm. uh, empowering the public relations practitioner, the function in particular, the senior practitioner. Mm -hmm. um, also a product of IABC research, like the Velvet Ghetto Wars. Mm -hmm. But the in, in Gruning's world, he talked very much about hierarchies and, and mm -hmm. this growth from junior to, to senior to manager to um, uh, CCO. But there's a term that, that starts to be, it seems to me, preferred these days, which is trusted advisor. Mm. Yeah. And the position of a trusted advisor um, claimed some independence from internal forces and, and external forces. Mm. Posits, uh, in, in a way, the PR practitioner and this very Luhmannian systems theory mm. in the middle, like, like a membrane, like a gatekeeper, but that, ha that, that is devoid of, 
of the internal pressures of the company that would come with mm. the salary and uh, you know the loyalty that any sort of employment would bring. Mm. Um, what do you what do you make of this? Is is calling us trusted advisors taking us away from the challenges that? Um, the feminization and and associations of emotional labor um, are are bringing. Well, I think it's an interesting development, and and I can remember certainly you know the, the looking at the roles of, of PR from the from the past research. You know, the advisory role was one of them, and the, the use of the term trusted advisor is a term that practitioners would use. Those I have talk to through my own research, use that term, trusted advisor. They like to see themselves as people who their clients can go to. Um, they're the go-to people for PR advice and you know, they, they earn that trust um, over a period of time through the success, you know, the results that they're gaining and the kind of work they're doing. They know that they can be called upon. But I think when we look at the trusted advisor um, idea, which I have done in in my book, um, it's kind of got different connotations. And we look at the management consulting literature, for example. Um, There's a piece of work that was done in, um, published in 2009 by Sheila March, um, who looked at what was called the feminine in management consulting. And she contended that there were two consulting roles. Uh, One was called trusted advisor, which from a discourse perspective, which that she was um, using in her work, was very much associated with the feminine. And I'll explain that in a minute. The second role, uh, or the second discourse, let's say, was around the objective professional And I see these two um, roles as not necessarily one or the other, but it's what is perhaps preferred, a preferred discourse that's the interesting thing within each profession. Um, So what she was was arguing in her book, that the trusted advisor, which um, involved um, the role of, of relational work, Doing the relational work, the emotional work, um, involving a degree of empathy and understanding was very much a kind of feminine discourse, but it was being um, taken over by, in management consulting, trying, you can see here some some, uh, interesting kind of comparisons, trying to be more... um, taken more seriously, trying to be more, um, you know, robust in its its kind of predictions, perhaps. And this objective professional was coming more to the fore as a masculine discourse. um, And that was kind of um, in contention with this trusted advisor discourse. And I think when we start to look at this trusted advisor, we have to interrogate what's meant by that. Um, and do we have, you know, indeed a similar struggle going on in um, in public relations uh, in perhaps uh, the, the work that was done by uh, Betica Van Rula some years ago when she, in her very um, interesting article, uh, I think it was uh, 
practitioners from Venus or something like that. Um, I don't know. It was Venus and Mars. It was that kind of idea. Um, uh, I think it was practitioners from Venus, scholars from Mars. And she was trying to say that um, emotional intelligence was the preferred model of practitioners, whereas scholars were promoting and the knowledge model. And I see, uh, you know, some comparisons here between the work of Marsh and and uh, Van Ruler's observations. Um, so we, it's not, I don't think, strictly an either or. Either you have this, you know, very emotionally driven, personality driven profession versus a knowledge driven one, which is, a, a, you know, advising on the basis of best practice and case studies and strategies and so on. But I do think there is a there is a kind of a um, you know a struggle there, contention between the two because of the gender related um, connotations of those roles. Um, so I I don't know whether that makes sense, but I think that there's something to be said about um, trusted advisor in public relations. And my view is that. It's and certainly based on my own research, this this relates to the role of educating, which a lot of consultants use in their client relations, educating them about PR, what it does, what it can do, particularly the media relations role, probably now, uh, more often nowadays, uh, the social media um, education that's required and how you demonstrate that and how you show that this can, you know, be uh, a course of action, a good course of action for the client. So educating and empathising, in my view, are very much related to the trusted advisor role. Now, whether that's considered by practitioners to be feminine, (laughs) uh, relational practice, um, I don't know. But it seems to me that the sorts of discourses that go along with that role are feminine and the masculine ones are very much around oh results return on investment you know the hard you know the hard evidence of something working whereas um you know what we have to do in order to get there the relational work in order to get to that point is uh you know arguably more feminine in its um in it, in the kind of processes that are used so sort of to to leave it here as it is looking at all these elements um of of disruption as we've seen in 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 the economy with new models social media for instance on on the media side of things if we had thought that trusted advisor might be a disruption of, of the management uh, model, <laughs> mm. we might just have to look at it in, in a very different way moving forward. It might just call things in a different way and help, um, but also perpetuate some some of those characteristics that um, of emotional labor, as you've indicated, that we might just really want to shake off. There's plenty of food for thought from this. Liz, thank you very, very much for um, joining me today. And uh, thank you for your time. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Next week, we'll continue with our insights into research and go all the way to Australia to meet with Dr. Christine Demetrius of Deakin University. 
We'll talk about the politics of gender and how they were seen at play in cases of sexual harassment involving Australian PR practitioners. Women in PR is brought to you by Quadriga University of Applied Sciences in Berlin and professionalpodcast.com. To learn more about the show and my guests, do check out the show notes. And if you liked it, by all means, share it. If you have comments and suggestions, find me on Twitter and LinkedIn. My biggest thanks go to Migo Feke and Regina Kana, my team at professionalpodcast.com. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be here now. I am Anna Adi. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>